Joshua chapter 10. And I am going to read the entire chapter, even though it is fairly long, and I don't know that we'll get to it all today, but we, we are going to read the whole chapter. So we'll begin in verse number 1. Now it came to pass when Adonazedic king of Jerusalem had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and her king, so he had done to Ai and her king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city as one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all the men thereof were mighty. Wherefore, Adonazedic king of Jerusalem sent unto Hoham king of Hebron, and unto Piram king of Jarmuth, and unto Japhia king of Lachish, and unto Debur king of Eglon, saying, Come up unto me and help me, that we may smite Gibeon, for it hath made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered themselves together, and went up, they and all their hosts, and encamped before Gibeon, and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua to the camp to Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up to us quickly, and save us, and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not. For I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon and smote them to Azekah and unto Makeda. And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. They were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after that, or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. And Joshua returned and all Israel with him unto the camp to Gilgal. But these five, but these five kings fled and hid themselves in a cave at Makeda, and it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings are found hid in a cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll great stones upon the mouth of the cave, and set men by it for to keep them. And stay ye not, but pursue after your enemies, and smite the hindmost of them. Suffer them not to enter into their cities, for the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand. It came to pass when Joshua and the children of Israel had made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they were consumed that the rest which remained of them entered into fenced cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then said Joshua, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. And they did so and brought forth those five kings unto him out of the cave 
the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. It came to pass when they brought out those kings unto Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua smote them and slew them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. And it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded. And they took them down off the trees and cast them into the cave wherein they had been hid and laid great stones in the, in the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. And that day Joshua took Makeda and smote it with the edge of the sword, smote it with the edge of the sword, and the king thereof he utterly destroyed them and all the souls that were therein. He let none remain, and he did to the king of Makeda as he did unto the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Makeda and all Israel with him unto Libna, and fought against Libna. And the Lord delivered it also, and the king thereof, into the hand of Israel. And he smote it with the edge of the sword, and all the souls that were therein, he let none remain in it, but did unto the king thereof as he had done unto the king of Jericho. And Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him unto Lachish, and encamped against it, and fought against it. And the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel, which took it on the second day, and smote it with the edge of the sword, and all the souls that were therein, according to all that he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua smote him and his people, until he had left him none remaining. And from Lachish Joshua passed unto Eglon and all Israel with him. And they encamped, they encamped against it and fought against it. And they took it on that day and smote it with the edge of the sword, and all the souls that were therein he utterly destroyed that day according to all that he had done to Lachish. And Joshua went up from Eglon and all Israel with him unto Hebron, and they fought against it. And they took it and smote it with the edge of the sword, and the king thereof, and all the cities thereof, and all the souls that were therein, he left none remaining, according to all that he had done to Eglon, but destroyed it utterly, and all the souls that were therein. And Joshua returned, and all Israel with him to Debur, and fought against it, and he took it, and the king thereof, and all the cities thereof, and they smote them with the edge of the sword, and utterly destroyed all the souls that were therein. He left none remaining, as he had done to Hebron, so he did to Debur, and to the king thereof, as he had done also to Libna and to her king. So Joshua smote all the country of the hills and of the south and of the vale and of the springs and all their kings. He left none remaining but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua smote them from Kadesh Barnea even unto Gaza and all the country of Goshen even unto Gibeon. And all these kings in their land did Joshua take at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And Joshua returned and all Israel with him unto the camp to Gilgal. And let's pray. Lord, again, it is a privilege to study Your Word. And I ask that You would uh, give us the true meaning of Your Word, Lord, that it would uh, just help us to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to You. I pray that we just cherish Your Word and... Uh, Again, just consider it a great honor and privilege to be here and to study it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. 
Well, as verse 42 summarizes, this chapter, chapter 10, is, is really describing a, a very large campaign involving a lot of different groups of people. It really kind of allows the Israelites to take control of a, a much larger portion of the promised land than, they, than they've had up to this point. Their, their battles so far have, you know, prior to this, have pretty much been limited to the very central part of Canaan, just those cities of Jericho and Ai and and you know the the peace treaty that they have just made with Gibeon. So this really enables them to spread quite a ways into the southern part of the of the promised land, and so really make a, a pretty pretty strong take a pretty pretty good stronghold of the land. In verse number one, it says, "Now it came to pass that that phrase there is is really kind of uh, typical of." the events in the book of Joshua, I think it's pretty clear that um, the, the entire campaign, the conquering of the Canaanites, took seven years. I think um, if you do a study on chronology, there's, I think there's ample evidence to support that. I think we're, we're going to see that in a, in a, you know, in a few chapters as we, as we look at the life of Caleb and we're given some details about his age as to the time of when some of these, these things started and when they ended. So the overall conquest took about seven years, but the individual battles, we don't know exactly how much time transpired between many of these individual battles or skirmishes. We don't know, you know, whether it was days or weeks or months. Um, I'm sure there are other little skirmishes or battles that probably aren't recorded in the book of Joshua. But we know it all took about seven years. Turn back to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23, that it takes a long time really isn't surprising, shouldn't be surprising, wasn't, would not have been surprising to them, the, um, the two and a half tribes that had made the promises to Moses that they were going to help in this conquest, they shouldn't be surprised, and I, and I don't think they are surprised as to how long it's taking. Exodus chapter 23, and we're going to begin in chapter, or in verse number 27. It says, I will send my fear before thee, and this is of course prophecy, this is prediction, this is Moses letting the people know what is to happen in the future. And I will send my fear before thee, and I will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come, and will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. And I will send hornets before thee, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before thee. Verse 29, I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field multiply against thee. By little and little I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. So we see that, again, the the, the length of the conquest, the fact that it's taking a long time, isn't, shouldn't be a surprise. We're, you know, they're told right here that it was certainly going to take longer than a year. And, you know, I, I, there's times in my life when I have to wait on the Lord. He doesn't give me a, you know, He doesn't give me all the details of what the future holds. I remember about nine years ago when I was faced with a, with an opportunity to switch jobs and, you know, I could have remained with my, my old employer or, or gone to my new employer and, and, you know, it, I thought it was a difficult decision. I prayed about it. 
and I certainly gave a lot of thought towards it. Um, I didn't just flip a coin, but, uh, you know, ultimately I was, I had to trust the Lord. I had to come to the conclusion, you know, that the Lord wasn't going to give me the ability to see what was going to be going on five, seven, nine, ten years down the road. And, you know, this is similar to the situation that these people faced. They knew that they were up against a conquest. That they were, you know, they were in for a long campaign, but, you know, I, the Lord didn't give them all of the details exactly how it was all gonna, how it was all gonna play out, but ultimately they just had to trust Him, and that's what I had to do with, with regard to my job. I just had to trust the Lord and, and trust that He was gonna work it out, and, and, you know, it's worked out very well. The Lord has taken, taken good care of me. Turn back to Joshua chapter 10. I think many times if we were, you know, we, we probably have a tendency to maybe wish that God would give us all of those details, but, but then later on we're probably glad that He didn't. You know, we're, we're glad that He doesn't let us see too far into the future and let us see too much of what's going to be going on. I can certainly think of incidents regarding these, all of these battles and all of the, the, the ups and downs and, you know, the sin that had to be dealt with in, in terms of this, you know, period of time with the with the Israelites, and you know they're probably glad they didn't really know what was in store for them way back in in the book of Exodus when Moses was giving them these instructions. But anyway, the the Israelites formulate a plan. These uh, these groups of of people are uniting against Gibeon, and they're they're going to come to the aid and the rescue of Gibeon. This is nothing new, uh, having. Kings and and people groups of people unite against the Lord. Um, God many times uses the the disobedience of His people in ways, you know, turns 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 it into a good thing. And you know the the disobedience that we saw last week in chapter nine with the the peace treaty that Israel had made with the Gibeonites. It was something that God had forbidden, and yet now it's something that is, you know, it's done. It's They've got to live with it. And they had taken an oath that they were going to spare the lives of the Gibeonites. But, you know, many times God uses those things, and, and He uses them to our advantage, even though, you know, they're they're done in disobedience. I, I often tell, you know, the, the, the young people, and particularly in the junior high and the high school, I say, you know, you know, we do things and we make a mess of our lives, but God cleans up the mess. You know, He makes something wonderful out of something that, you know, we did in disobedience. Now, we don't presume upon God's goodness. We don't presume upon His mercy. We don't go out and make a mess of our lives just to watch God clean it up. That would be foolish. But nevertheless, a lot of times when we do make a mess of our lives, the wonderful thing is that's what we get to see. We get to see God make something wonderful out of it happen. And, you know, we could point to a lot of different things here in this story revolving, you know, involving the Gibeonites, and that's what happens. You know, Israel is going to use them to help them fight some of these battles against the, you know, against the, the remaining groups of people in the Promised Land. And not only that, the fact that these, these five groups of people right now are converging upon the Gibeonites, you know, it seems that God is using that as, as, a, as a strategy that now... That's going to allow these these five armies, these five kings. He's going to allow that 
so that they can all be destroyed in a single confrontation with Israel. And so then Israel has the added benefit of having the Gibeonites help them with that. So again, even though we look back and we see that, you know, what they had done was in disobedience, you know, God has a way of working those things out and making those things come out for our good. And that's what Joseph said in Genesis 50:20. He said, you know, my, my brothers did all of these evil things towards me. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so it's wonderful when we can look back in our lives and see that that's how the Lord works. In verse number two, we kind of looked at this a little bit last week. The, the Gibeonites were an extremely powerful people. They may have been considered the best of the best in the land of Canaan. It says here that they were, they were mighty. They were men of valor. And this was one of the particular reasons why these, these other five groups of people were particularly troubled because the, you know, maybe the best warriors among them had, had dissented and had switched to the other side. We're now on the side of the, of the Israelites. And, you know, their plan seems to be a little bit that of revenge. Notice in verse 3, the king of Jerusalem in this verse is, is one of the wicked leaders. He's probably a particularly wicked king, quite a contrast to the, the man who was stated in the book of Hebrews as being the king of this particular area earlier, Melchizedek, who was, who was called a king of righteousness. Now these lands have fallen into the control of those that are particularly wicked. And in verse 4, that's really where we see kind of the indication that this is probably revenge. You know, the war against the Gibeonites seems to be revenge for their desertion. And, you know, even though we wouldn't necessarily attribute all, uh, you know, really good motives to the Gibeonites for having uh, switched sides, you know, their primary motivation, of course, was survival. It was to save their lives. It wasn't necessarily to be faithful to the Lord. Nevertheless, they have come underneath of the covenant of the Lord. And, you know, that there's a... There's a lesson there for us, you know, when we're going to be, when we're going to desert the, the world, desert the enemy and, and join forces with God, there are going to be those that are going to become our enemy that were formerly our, our allies. And that's what's happened here. These, these kings are now coming against Gibeon. Verse number five, the unity of these kings is certainly going to work to their disadvantage. And this isn't anything that is unique. Um, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 16. There's a, a similar incident that is going to occur in the future before the Lord returns. Revelation, chapter 16, verse 12. Revelation, chapter 16, verse 12. It says, In the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, for they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to to the battle of that great day of God Almighty." So, you know, this is very similar to what hap- is what's going on in the book of Joshua. Of course, this is a, on a much grander scale. This is, you know, what we refer to as the end times. But it's, you know, it's a pattern throughout history that, that people are united against God and they're going to meet their defeat. I, I think it's particularly interesting in this passage. Notice verse 15. If you have a, a red letter edition, it pretty much jumps out at you. It says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. 
you know, here we have a, a warning, a, a, an encouragement from the Lord Jesus Christ to remain faithful during these times of persecution when, you know, when the whole world seems to be united against us, when the whole world was united against Israel. Uh, that's the message, to remain faithful and loyal to Christ. And, you know, we can certainly see sufficient evidence of, of the need to do that. And, you know, I mean, this here obviously is referring to, to a time of the future, you know, probably not that that far into the future. But that's that's the message for all times. You know, we're all to remain loyal and faithful to Christ under times of persecution. You know, as I listen to the news, uh, you know, just this past week, you know, you have yet another incident of you have a you have someone who comes out as a, you know, declaring that they're a Bible believer. You have Bill Robertson of the Duck Dynasty show, and he comes out and declares that he's a Bible-believing Christian, and of course he's condemned and ridiculed and persecuted and fired from his job. Then on the contrast, you have someone who comes out and says they're a homosexual, you know, whether it's an NBA basketball player or whether it's a, you know, a, a news commentator or whoever it is, and, you know, they get a call from the president and the first lady commending them on, you know, how wonderful they are. And that's, that's the world that we live in. You know, everything is turned upside down, but it's, it shouldn't surprise us, you know. It's, it's the same thing that has been going on for a long time. It's the same thing that's, that's going to continue to go on. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, we are told in Matthew 24 and 25, those chapters, that you know that's what we're to do. That's what the, the people who are alive at the time of the tribulation at the time before the Lord returns. That's what they're supposed to do. They're there to remain faithful. They're to be watching for the Lord's return. They're to make sure, just like the warning there in Revelation chapter 16, they're to make sure that when the Lord returns that He finds them ready and waiting and watching for Him and finds them faithful. We don't want to be caught you know, in an embarrassing situation where we have to be ashamed of, the, of what we're involved in. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's our president. That's, that's, you know, is there any debate about that? Is there any confusion about that? I mean, that's, you know, for those of us that read our Bibles and understand our Bibles, how can it be any clearer? I mean, that's, you know, this is the, the country that we find ourselves in can be discouraging, but on the other hand, we're not to be discouraged. Um, you know, really, this is the point. You know, we're, you know, we, we've got a, we've got a choice that we got to make. You know, are we going to solicit the praise of the President of the United States and, you know, cherish receiving a phone call from him commending us for our sin? Or are we going to understand that we're going to have to stand before God someday and give an account of that? And, and that's what we're going to have to do. Turn back to, to Joshua chapter 10. And if you've got any, you know, if you, if you want to interject a comment, feel free to do so. Joshua chapter 10, verse number 6. This is where the Gibeonites, of course, you know, they're fearful. They, these, these kings are converging upon them, and so they immediately... You know, they've come under the covenant of the Lord and they took, they take full advantage of that covenant. That's what we're to do. 
When we get saved, we're to use everything at God's disposal for our benefit. That's what he wants us to do. He wants us to come and draw on him. He wants us to rely on him. He wants us to ask of him for his help. Now, Israel is obliged to help them for at least three reasons. Number one, not necessarily in this order, but number one, the law stated that masters were to protect their servants. Now, whether or not the Gibeonites knew that when they, you know, when they sought this peace treaty, you know, I'm not sure, but never, but that's, you know, that's one of the advantages of it. And number two, the Gibeonites would help them in their battles. They would help the Israelites in their battles. And number three, and probably this would be the most important, is simply for the honor of God's name. Remember, the, the Israelites had taken an oath to spare the lives of the Gibeonites. So, you know, they, they, you know, they, they have no choice but to spare their lives. Now, on the other hand, they're, you know, Israel is probably taking things a little bit farther than what the initial agreement would have called for. You know, the agreement was to spare their lives at the hands of the Israelites. It wasn't necessarily to protect their lives from being saved from other enemies. But nevertheless, that's what happens. That's what Israel is going to do. That's what, that's what they come and do. Uh, you know, this is a great opportunity for Joshua to show them just how mighty and powerful his God is. And it's kind of interesting, you know, the, the wording here, you know, the, the, the Gibeonites come in verse number 6 and say, save us. And that's exactly what Joshua's name means, the Lord saves. So very appropriate there. And in verse number 7, Joshua treats the Gibeonites as they're his own people. You know, he goes, again, he goes even further than what was required of the peace treaty, you know, of the peace treaty that had been that had been signed, and of course, each one of us would would find ourselves in that situation. When we came to the Lord and accepted the Lord as our Savior, we didn't have the slightest clue as to all of the benefits and all of the great riches that were going to be given to us and that were going to be at our disposal when we accepted the Lord as our Savior. Those those are things that we continue to find out as as we go on. And verse number 8, Joshua gives his assurance that Joshua is given assurance by God that they will be victorious. And as we have seen several times throughout the book already, this is not a new message. This is a repeat of, of the original assurance that Joshua had given by the Lord way back in chapter 1, verse number 5. The Lord is just continuing to give Joshua that reassurance. You know, it, it seems like every time they come across a major battle, the Lord continues to remind him and to give him that assurance that the Lord is on his side. And we're grateful for that assurance that we have today. And that's why, we, you know, we read our Bibles and a lot of times we come across a verse of Scripture that seems to be very similar, almost the same as another verse of Scripture. That That's not an accident. The Lord knows that that we need that reassurance. We need that reaffirmation you know we we're weak you know we are we our faith is is doubting and so it's nice to to hear those reminders and to see those things in verse number nine joshua doesn't hesitate uh, it says there suddenly joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up to gilgal all night and um you know the gibeonites could have been destroyed very quickly um, and so, you know, they don't waste any time in coming to their defense. Now, if you, I don't know how many of you, some of you may have a, a map in your Bible. Um, I have one in mine, and, and, you know, from what I was able to, to study, um, these four cities of the Gibeonites were probably all a minimum of 20 miles west of Gilgal. And so this journey by night to come to the aid of the Gibeonites, I mean, this was no easy task. 
this was something that would have taken many, many, many hours. I know, um, you know, in talking with Ethan Uralamik, you know, he has done some 20-mile hikes in the in the military, you know, carrying a 75-pound backpack, and uh, I'm glad I'm not in the military. I, I know I couldn't do that, but certainly not today. And that that's a very difficult task, and yet that's what they do. They, they come to the aid of the Gibeonites, and, you know, they don't really... Um, you know, they, they don't really uh, pull out any, you know, pull, they pull out all the stops. You know, this was done at night. Um, we used to, when I was working with the youth group at, at, at another church, we used to have at least a, an all-nighter once a year, typically New Year's Eve, where the youth would come and they would stay till 6 in the morning and, I'm glad I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, it's nice on Fridays. Uh, the youth are here from 6 to 9, and the parents, most of them show up at 9 o'clock and claim their kids, and that's great, and then we can go home. And, and I, I mean, I have trouble just staying up to see the new year come in anymore. I, I, can't, I can't be staying up till 6 in the morning. But, uh, you know, I used to work the graveyard ship. I never liked it. I never, I never, you know, I never... Took a liking to it. I I remember about four or five in the morning. I would just think, you know, is morning ever going to get here? And that's probably what some of these people were thinking. But you know, it finally did. In Second Timothy two one through four, Paul likens us as Christians to good soldiers of Jesus Christ, willing to endure hardness. You know, so even though we don't go out of our way and we don't look for that. Nevertheless, there are times when we're, that's demanded of us, you know, that's required of us. That, you know, we're not always allowed to remain in our comfort zone and to do everything just because it, it appears to come across as very easy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and in chapter 11, Paul lists many of the hardships that he endured. And I, you know, I have found over the last several years that it's, it's beneficial for me to to read these lists, um, you know, I, I, I mean, not that I need a reminder because I know that you know anything that I'm enduring or anything that I'm going through could never compare to what the Apostle Paul went through. But nevertheless, it's easy, for, it, you know, it's good for me to, to to read the list now and then, and I'll just read you some of the things that Paul mentions that he went through. Paul says he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was stoned. He was shipwrecked, he was sleepless, he was robbed, he was hungry, he was thirsty, he fasted often, he was cold, he was naked. All of these things. So, you know, when I read those lists, you know, then I come to the conclusion, I mean, the least I can do is show up and teach my class and be here on time and be to choir on time and not fall asleep during the service and all these things. All of those things just don't even compare to what Paul went through. And then Paul tells us, Obviously, he was not a complainer. He tells us in Romans 8.18, he says, despite all of these things, he says, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That kind of puts everything in the proper perspective. You know, we have a tendency to kind of, you know, get down and complain and think, you know, I'm too busy and I'm overworked and I've got too much going on and... And, you know, not that we shouldn't take care of ourselves. Obviously, you know, we, we need to take care of our health. But, but nevertheless, you know, I think a lot of us find it pretty easy to talk ourselves out of serving the Lord. You know, we just, it's very easy to say, I'm, I'm just too busy. 
I've got too much to do. Verse number 10. Verses 10 through through 14, and really the whole chapter, and actually the book, you know, really make it clear that it is the Lord who is doing all of this. It is the Lord who is fighting these battles. It is the Lord who is obtaining the victory. It says, verse number, verse number 10, the Lord disconfitted, which of course means just sent panic and terror through them, caused them confusion. And that was often a, a tactic and a strategy used by the Lord to just cause them to be confused. It says, the Lord did this. God fights the battle. In verse number 11, it says that the Lord sent great hailstones to crush them. More were killed by those hailstones than were killed by the sword. And these are very heavy stones. Um, in our Bibles, in the New Testament, in Revelation 19, at the, at the final culmination of, of the battle, um, the Bible says that there are also great hailstones that were used at that time. And, and we're told in that verse in Revelation 19 that they weighed about a talent, which, you know, depending on, on uh, you know, the, the scale you're using is anywhere from 60 to 100 pounds. But obviously, easy, easy for us to understand how someone would, be, someone would be killed by being hit by a 60 or 100 pound hailstone. And so, you know, that's what the Lord chooses to do here. And... You know, again, when you keep in mind the, the geography of, of what's going on here, um, you know, and again, these four these cities surrounding the Gibeonites are 20 miles from Gilgal, and we don't know exactly how quickly Joshua overtook these enemies or even began to chase them. It's certainly understandable that the enemies may have been, you know, a mile or two ahead in their retreat as they were heading west of Gilgal, and so, you know. Uh, you know, even today, many times, you know, we'll get a hail storm and, and, you know, Larry just lives a couple of miles from me and I'll get hail and he won't or he'll get hail and I won't. And so, you know, these hailstorms tend to be very localized. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, regardless of how it worked out, whether it was miraculous or not, in terms of the timing, the Lord used this as an opportunity to destroy the enemies of Israel and at the same time didn't harm any of the Israelites. Truly the working of God. It's kind of ironic, you know, that, that we see several times throughout these verses that God uses His power of creation to crush and destroy the Canaanites because they worship the creation instead of the Creator. And so that, that's just kind of ironic, you know, that, that God chooses to do that. You know, the same thing that we're going to see here coming up with the sun. One thing I thought was kind of interesting that, that Dale Ralph Davis one of the, the authors of one of the, the, the commentaries that I've been reading, one of the things that he that he mentioned was that, you know, we probably many times somewhat fail to to really teach our children to appreciate, you know, the, the fact that Jesus is a mighty warrior who is who is fighting for us. Uh, many times, you know, we, we send them home with with pictures of Jesus, you know, carrying a lamb on his shoulders or, or company, comforting the woman at the well, you know, or doing something like that, which is much, you know, very mild and tender and gentle. And, you know, maybe we, we don't often enough teach our children, you know, that Jesus is a mighty warrior. And, you know, I mean, I, I think he has a valid point. I, I'm sure he has a, a great point there. I mean, I'm not sure how far you want to take it, you know, as I was you know, kind of thinking through that, you know, I thought, you know, I was thinking of Revelation chapter 19 where, you know, the, the, it talks about the great supper before the Lord where at the, you know, after the final battle and all of the Lord's enemies have been destroyed, 
it talks about the fowls coming down and, you know, eating their flesh. And I thought, you know, do we really want to send our kids home with pictures of, you know, fowls eating flesh? I mean, how far do we want to take it, you know? Maybe we want to let them enjoy their innocence a little bit, you know. But, uh, you know, and also in that passage, you know, it says that, that the Lord Jesus showed up on a white horse wearing a, you know, his vesture was dipped in blood. And so, you know, it can get kind of gory and gruesome. And But, I mean, I understand his point. I think it's a valid one. You know, we probably need to to be aware of the fact that, you know, we're not misrepresenting the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're not just always portraying him as this this one that is, you know, gentle and always, you know, Certainly, he's willing to forgive, but you know, there's there comes a time when judgment is imminent, and judgment is is necessary, and and you know they need to understand that, and that he's a mighty warrior, and that he fights for us. And then we get to verse number twelve, and this is where we have the the uh, the sun standing still. Many many lessons here. Uh, Joshua speaks to the Lord to command that the sun stand still, and you know this really does represent, underscore the power of prayer. I mean, we, you know, we, we don't really see the words prayer here. We, we see Joshua talking to the Lord, and yet we need to understand that's what prayer is. I mean, that, that's, you know, as I read some of the Psalms and I, I look at the way that David interacted with the Lord, I, that's, what, that's what prayer is. I mean, you know, we, we certainly don't want to be irreverent when we're talking with the Lord, but, but we need to talk with the Lord. You know, we, um, you know, it, we don't have to think of prayer just in terms of something that is very formal and, you know, flowery and showy. You know, we can just sit down and pour our heart out to the Lord and talk to Him. And, and I, I think that's kind of what Joshua's doing here. He's having a, you know, he's talking to the Lord. And he's desiring that this day, this time of day, whatever time of day it is, he's desiring that it remain like this. And there's a lot of debate and dispute and discussion about exactly what time of day it was. You know, it says there at the the end of verse 13 that the sun stood in the midst of heaven. You know, so whether or not that was high noon, I don't know. A lot of people don't really believe that that's the case. Um, the fact that there, the moon is also mentioned here. They think that what really is going on here is that this is the very early part of the day. Almost, you know, the breaking of dawn, which is why we have the references to the moon, because... Uh, you have the moon, which, you know, we, we see that today. Many times as you get up early in the morning, you can see both the sun and the moon. And a lot of people believe that really what was going on here was Joshua found himself in a situation where everything was going great. The circumstances were exactly what he would have desired. The, the heat of the day hadn't arrived and, you know, the light was in such a way that they were able to pursue the enemy and destroy the enemy. So basically Joshua just says, I want it to stay exactly like this. And so that's what he asks the Lord to do. And the Lord grants that request. He's dem- Joshua's demonstrating great faith. You know, faith that God controls nature, that God has the power to do this. I like the way Matthew Henry points out that it was God that put this idea in Joshua's head. We would think of a thousand schemes that would never work. We would never think of such a thing. And that's, that's what we should do. We should pray for God and ask for wisdom. And I'm sure many of us can attest to personal situations where we've asked God for wisdom. And he's done exactly that. He's given us an idea that we would have never thought of. And we know we never would have thought of it had we not prayed and asked him for wisdom. And that's, that's very encouraging. And that should be a reminder to us of the power of prayer and how we need to resort and revert back to the power of prayer more often than we do. Again, feel free to, to interject your comments anytime you want. I don't feel like you're... 
you're interrupting because I'll just go right on. <laughs> Verse number 13. Of course, you know, Joshua's prayer was answered. The sun stood, stood still. And, you know, just like the hailstones, here we have another example of, uh, you know, God using the creation against them. They worship the sun also instead of the Creator. And now that's what God uses to destroy them. There are plenty instances in Scripture where God alters the normal course of nature. We see in Exodus chapter 10, the ninth plague was darkness for three days. We see in Matthew chapter 27, there was darkness for three hours at the crucifixion. We see in Matthew chapter 24 that when the Lord's return, when the Lord returns, the sun and the moon will turn to blood. So these, this is consistent. You know, this is nothing that that really should be too surprising to us. We certainly understand and expect that the Lord has complete power over His creation. Now, this certainly was a long day, uh, literally the longest day in the in the history of the world, as as everyone understands it. Um, it does seem there from from verse 13. If you look at the last part of verse 13, it says, "And hasted not to go down about a whole day." Most believe that that means exactly that the the daylight hours were prolonged by probably half a day. So instead of a normal 24-hour day, you had a 36-hour day. You had you know 12 hours of darkness, and in the middle of that, you had 24 hours of light instead of you know the, the typical 12 or, or 13, 14 hours of light. Now, you know, many question this. You know, they say, well, you know, how could this have happened? You know, they try to discount this miracle. They say, did the earth stop revolving or did the sun speed up to keep pace with the earth? Or, you know, how did this affect? You know, if you start asking all those questions, to me, you're just completely missing the whole point. The whole point is that it's a miracle. I mean, by definition, a miracle can't be explained. If it could, it wouldn't be a miracle. So, I mean, it just it just seems like that's just kind of an exercise in futility for people to keep trying to figure out all of these ways in which it happened, you know, and they wonder how the earth wasn't messed up and, you know, how everything didn't get you know, I don't really see the point. You know, it's I take the Bible at face value and it was a miracle and God worked it out and God is in charge of his creation. And I don't have to want I don't have to think that something is out of sync because, you know, because of this happened. No, not at all. The Lord is in complete control. Verse number 14. Bible makes it clear there's never been a day like this. This was certainly unique. Never been repeated. And, and this verse underscores, you know, we don't, we don't want to miss this. This, un, this verse underscores the power of prayer. It says, And there was no day like that before it or after that. The Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. This verse teaches us that God listens to us. We probably sometimes tend to doubt that. And it is, you know, when you really stop to think about it, it is a pretty awesome thought. You know, there are 7 billion people in the world. And God listens to us. Each one of us. He listened to Joshua. We don't need to have the attitude that, well, Joshua was special. He was... He was a, a superhero. He was a leader. He was whatever. And so, you know, the Lord isn't... No, the Lord wants to hear your prayer. He wants to listen to you. He wants to listen to me. He, that's what He desires. He desires a relationship with each one of us. I mean, what a, what a great lesson. And what a great contrast. You know, the Bible makes clear in, in the book of Isaiah that all of these gods, that, that all of these heathen nations worshipped, whether these were gods of stone or wood or whatever... They weren't able to listen to anybody's prayer. 
They weren't able to answer anybody's prayer. I mean, they, they, they're nothing. And, you know, that's, that's really the point here is that God is a God who listens. He's a God that is, that is interested in His creation. He wants us to go to Him and ask Him of things. Now, also we see here in verse 14 that even though His name isn't mentioned, it says, The Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. That man is Joshua. And this is yet additional fulfillment of God's prediction back in God's promise back in Joshua chapter 3, verse 7, that He was going to magnify Joshua. He was going to magnify Joshua in the sight of all the people. And that's, this is what continues to be done. And, you know, not only was Joshua magnified in the sight of all those people, I mean, here we are, 30, you know, over 3,000 years later, and we're still talking about the, you know, the, the prayer of Joshua and, you know, the, the, the power of his prayer. So God certainly made good on that promise. And then, of course, the last phrase in verse 14, it says, For the Lord fought for Israel. That's how we started this particular thought. Look at verse 10, And the Lord disconfitted them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter. The whole point is it's all about the Lord. I mean, we can talk all we want about how mighty the men were and, and you know, how great a soldiers they were and men of valor, but that's the whole focus here is this God did everything. He was the one that chased the enemy away. He was the one that slaughtered the enemy. He was the one that threw down the hailstones. He was the one that, that stopped the sun. He was the one that answered the prayer and listened to the prayer. And, you know, we have to be very careful. We, we can get a little bit puffed up. We can think, you know, that we've done this or we've done that. And we, we just always have to humble ourselves and come back and remember that it's the Lord that, that does everything. And He just, you know, allows, you know, us to be used. He works through us and uses us. But, you know, it's, it's really, it's the Lord that is doing all of this. All right, we're, we're just about out of time. Anyone have any comments that they want to, that they want to interject? Zuzu, did I see your hand go up? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> she was just parting her hair or something. Anyone? We have a few minutes, and I don't really want to go on here. I'll uh, Mary. Sure. Oh, I, I, no doubt. We all see that every day. Anyone else? Glenn. Good. Yeah, anyone else? I guess everyone's waiting outside the door, so maybe we better stop. All right, you're dismissed.